2 Peter chapter 3. And we've been studying in the book of 2 Peter, and we learned that the first chapter was about faith. The second chapter, where the subject was fakes, false teachers, false prophets. But we're in the third chapter, and the subject is future, the future. Peter's talking about the second coming of Jesus and the judgment of the end time, the day of the Lord. And he's addressing those scoffers and people that were scoffing at the coming of Christ. And I want to do a little review of last week and then a little preview of tonight. And we'll dive right into our message, what we're going to be talking about. And I borrowed this little outline here that I'm going to share with you very quickly from Adrian Rogers because I wanted something good to say this morning. So I got it from him. But uh, <laughs> chapter uh, Two verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5, look at this. This is the first thing that we talked about last week. The past world was destroyed by water. Look at this. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. And we learned the past world was destroyed by water. That was Noah's day. We also learned the second thing was this. The present world is destined for fire. The present world is destined for fire. Verse number 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Skip down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore... Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we'll get to that in just a second. Hold on. I'll get to verse 13 in a minute. So the present world is destined for fire. And this is tonight's message. The third thing is this. The future world is designed for glory. And we'll talk about this tonight at 6 o'clock on Facebook. But this is verse 13. Look at it. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if all this is true, and it is, the Bible teaches that everything that we just said is true. The past world was destroyed by water. This present world we live in is destined for fire. There's a future world for glory because he's coming. Then the question is, how do we get ready for that? How can a person be ready for that? A saved person, an unsaved person, a believer, an unbeliever. How do we get ready if he's coming? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. The first thing is this. We're going to dive right into our outline. You have to be saved, first and foremost. Be saved. To be ready means to be saved. Look back with me at verse 8 in this text, verse 8 and 9. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years And a thousand years is one day. God's not on our timetable. God has his plan. You and I are not to worry about the time. You and I are worried about being right. Make sure we're right with God. But look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The first step to being ready for Jesus to come and being ready for all this world that's destined for fire is to be saved. Now, of all the attributes of God, and God has many characteristics and many traits, He is creator. 
He is sustainer. The Bible says that God sustains all of this world by the word of his power. Everything's held up by God. He is a provider. He is a healer. He is just. He is a just judge. He is a righteous judge. He gives us a holy law. He is loving and kind. He is patient. We'll read it right here in the text. But he is also a savior. God's very nature is to be a savior. 1 Timothy 2, 3 says it this way, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Isaiah 45 says this, verse 15, Truly you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And a few verses later, God himself starts speaking to Isaiah and through Isaiah. Verse 25, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God desires to save people. Now, to be saved in the New Testament means to be delivered, to be rescued, to be set free. And it almost always has the connotation of salvation eternally, our souls, our spiritual lives. It's the idea of being rescued. When a person is saved, they're delivered from sin. They're delivered from the penalty of sin. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, the result of sin is death. And God wants to rescue us from the penalty of sin. He wants to free us. He wants to forgive us. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. God wants to free us from the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, which is death. You know, yesterday we had our sister Shirley's funeral. Every time you hear about death, it's a reminder of sin. Every death is a reminder that what God said is true. The wages of sin is death. Every death is a reminder of the reality of sin and that sin's payment is real. Its wages is real. Every single death that we see. And God desires to rescue us from the eternal penalty of sin. The Bible talks about the second death in the book of Revelation. We all face the first death, but there's a second death. That second death is the eternal separation of our souls and and who we are as humans from God forever. It's the second death. God desires to save us from that second death. God desires to save us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. You know, when you get saved, you do not have to live under the power of sin. You do not have to live under the dominion of sin. You're still a sinner. This is the great thing about being saved. You're still a sinner, but you do not no longer have to be a slave to sin. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. But Romans chapter 6 tells us this. Sin shall not have dominion over you. God has given you his spirit. He's come to live within you. The God of heaven took up residence in you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You do not have to live under the power and the dominion of sin. You may choose to. You may choose not to fight the fight of faith. But you do not have to live a slave to sin. This is what salvation is. It's not just getting to heaven. It's God getting a little bit of himself, his spirit down in you where you can live free from the dominion of sin. But then finally, one day, guess what? One day you'll be delivered from the presence of sin. That place that we just read about where righteousness dwells, you know, one day you'll be in heaven and you won't hear of anybody dying. You won't hear of anybody harming one another. You won't hear of anything bad happening. 
There won't be the bad news days and this terrible thing you face. None of that. It'll all be gone because you'll be free from the presence of sin. See, listen, you won't just be free from the presence of death and tears and crying. What that means is you'll be free from the presence of sin, which causes all the death and the tears and the suffering and the crying. This is what heaven is about. This is what knowing God is about. Salvation. Paul writes about it this way, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. He's coming and we're waiting. Even Jesus who delivers us, same word, who saves us from the wrath to come. Who saves us from that wrath to come that we just read about in Second Peter. And because God is a savior, the promises of salvation through the Bible are true. Romans ten thirteen is true. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. The worst sinner the most irreligious person, the person who's farthest away from God right now at this moment, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, could cry out to God and be saved in an instant for eternity. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, when we talk about being saved, there's a few things this verse teaches us about being saved. First, it's because of the patience of God. We touched on this last week. We ended here, but I want to dive into it a little bit more because I just sort of skimmed the surface. It says this, verse 9, The Lord is not slack, not slow concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He comes back to this very thought down in verse 15. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 15, a few verses down. Look what he says. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long-suffering of God is is our salvation. Now, some Bibles use the word patience, and I use the word patience here. It's a good translation. We think about patience, but Peter quotes it in the idea of time here. He quotes, uh, uh, he does a, in verse 8, it's a, it's a paraphrase of Psalm 90, verse 4. It speaks of uh, the, the fact that God's not on our time schedule. He's one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day because God's outside of time. God is beyond time. God controls time. And people were pointing and saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? It's been so long. All these years, all these years have passed and it had been nothing compared to what we face thousands of years later. And people scoff and say, he says he's coming. Peter doesn't argue with them. He turns to the character of God and he says this, The reason Jesus hasn't returned is not because God is slow or God is slack. It's not because God is not able. It's because God is graciously patient with mankind. To be slack, the word here means to be delayed or it means to be late or to be loitering. You know, loitering used to be a big deal. I wish all we had in our cities the problem was loitering. Wouldn't it be great if the worst problem was loitering? Down there busting people for loitering. That'd be great. Loitering just means to aimlessly and idly stop and pause. It means to slow drag around. Well, God's not slow dragging around. He's not up in heaven loitering. Instead, God's not loitering. God is long-suffering. Now, I talked about this word being translated patience, and that's a good word. But a more vivid word is this word long-suffering. Because the word literally means to be long-tempered. It means to have a great capacity to hold your temper in. Now, I'm sure nobody here is guilty of this, but you all know people who are. 
I sure, I'm sure you all know people who are short-tempered. Nobody look at anybody. You know people who just down a minute, man, they can just blow it. They can just blow up on you. You can have the fiery uh, inferno right there on you. Boom, they just blow up. Short-tempered people. Well, God is not short-tempered, thank God. Thank the Lord he wasn't short-tempered with me when I spent years blaspheming in his name. When I spent years ignoring him, years denying him, years cursing him. If God had been short-tempered, he would have wiped me out. And, I w- and listen, if he had, he would have been justified. He's always just in what he does. But instead, he was patient. He was long-suffering with me. That's the way he is with us. We get saved because of the patience of God. Secondly, we get saved in the will of God. In the will of God. Peter says he's not willing that any should perish. It makes sense if God is a Savior, and he is, then he desires, his will is, for people to be saved. And you and I are saved today. If you're a Christian, it's first and foremost because God willed for you to be saved. Before you ever thought about being saved, God willed for you to be saved. God desired for you to be saved. God wanted you to be saved before you wanted it for yourself. God wanted you to be saved. Some people go around life trying to figure out God's will about everything. We do. We try to figure out God's will about this, God's will about that. I heard about a preacher years ago, the days before cell phones and all this. He was a country preacher and he was driving down a country road and his car broke down. So he had to walk looking for a place to use the uh, payphone. And he came upon just over the hill there was a roadhouse, a bar. So the preacher goes in and he calls a tow truck on the payphone. When he turns around, he spotted a man he knew, Frank, a guy who attended his church once in a while, but he hadn't seen him in a while. And he looked at Frank and Frank was sitting there about drunk and he was all shabbily dressed. And the preacher said, Frank, what in the world happened to you? You used to be rich, you used to have nice clothes and you used to have your life together. What happened to Frank? Started blubbering and going on, telling him, Preacher, I made some bad investments. I made some bad decisions. I blew all my money. What am I going to do, Preacher? Preacher said, Well, Frank, go home and sober up. He said, Then you get your Bible. You open your Bible at random, and you stick your finger on the page, and whatever you see, that is God's answer for you. A little while later, the preacher bumped into Frank a few months later, and Frank was wearing a new suit. He had him one of them nice Rolex watches on. And he noticed he just got out of a, Royals, uh, a Mercedes Benz. And the preacher said, Frank, man, it's good to see you. Good things have turned around. What in the world happened? He said, well, preacher, I'm telling you, preacher, I owe it all to you. Every bit of it. He said, I went home and did what you said. I sobered up. And the next thing I did was get my Bible. And I stuck my finger on the page and it said chapter 11. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered if y'all was going to get it. I didn't want to have to explain it. Listen, God's will is not that random. God's will is not that random. You don't have to stick your finger on the page. Here's what you know. It's God's will for you to be saved. It's not God's will for any to perish. All through the Bible, God pictures himself this way. Ezekiel 18, 23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? That chapter is full of verses where he says, turn and live. It's not my will for you to perish. Don't perish. Turn. 
In that passage we read in 1 Timothy 2, I want to finish reading it. Look what it says, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You have to come to the knowledge of the truth to be saved. But I'm going to tell you this, when you get saved, you'll, you'll come to the knowledge. You'll continue to come to it. Why? Here's the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. By the way, it's time for us to be testifying of him because he gave himself to die for us. He gave himself to save us. Why? Because God did not desire that we should perish. It's the will of God. Now, when it comes to the will of God, you need to understand there's God's perfect will and there's God's permissive will. God's perfect will is for you to be saved and not perish. God's perfect will is for no one to perish. But God permits people to perish because they reject Christ, because they live and die in unbelief. But listen, it's just like you and I. If you're a Christian this morning, you know that it's not God's will for you to sin. But yet God permits you to make choices, doesn't he? So as a Christian, I've sinned. It wasn't God's perfect will for me. It was God's permissive will. He permitted me. I made a bad choice. Then I had to go to God and get forgiveness so I could get in his perfect will again. Just like this, it's not God's perfect will that these people perish who do not believe, but it is God's permissive will. We know God's perfect will is not done on earth. In the lives of men and women always. It's not done on earth perfectly in our family, in our church. It's not perfectly done. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I can tell you this. When a person comes to Christ and believes on him, God's perfect will is done. When a person truly embraces Jesus Christ and receives him, God's perfect will is done in their life. So, we're saved because of the patience of God and by the will of God. Thirdly, through repentance towards God. Through repentance towards God. Peter says that all should come to repentance, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It means to change your mind, but that change of mind results in an action of the will. It's pictured, it's been pictured as U-turn. It's making a U-turn. It means you turn. You turn from your own way to God. It's a change of mind in your heart and your mind. You change. It means to change our minds about first ourselves. To repent means that we no longer see ourselves as okay. Pretty good. Not that bad. I haven't done anything all that bad, preacher. I'm as good as these other people. People think this all the time. Some people are actually bold enough to say it. I'm as good as anybody down at that church. Good. That 50 cents won't even get you a Coke anymore. I'm as good as anybody except Jesus, which is who you have to be good. You have to be as good as Jesus to get to heaven. See, we have to change our mind about ourselves. We, we see ourselves as okay. I haven't done anything all that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to make it. Some people even say, well, you know, I'm a self-made Christian. You're a self-made mess, but you're not a self-made Christian. There are no such things. Instead of realizing that we're broken, that we've fallen short, 
that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. That what the Bible says is true. Romans 3.10, there, there is none righteous, no, not one. What the Bible says is true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that doesn't make sin any less that all have sinned. It makes it worse. I change my mind about myself. Lose my confidence in myself. Secondly, it means we change our minds about our sin. We no longer excuse our sin, our sinful lifestyle, our sinful choices. We no longer say, well, I, I, I've always done that. I do that because my parents were that way. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my parents. But God does. And by the way, God forgives sin. But listen, God never excuses it. We like to excuse it. That's what saying, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I was raising. You don't know what my parents did. That's excusing your sin. Listen, God will never do that. Never, ever. Don't, don't count on that. You're not going to get to heaven and God's going to say, well, I know you live like the hellion, but your daddy was an unbeliever, so I'm going to let you in. He's not. You have to change your mind about your sin. We no longer excuse our sinful choices, our sinful lifestyle, our bad words, our wicked thoughts, our our deeds, our immorality, our hatred, our bitterness, our greed, our covetousness. Often the sins that we dearly love, that we don't want to give up, we stop excusing them because we have a change of mind about them. We forsake them and we confess them. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: He who covers the sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You stop covering them, you start confessing them. For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It means, thirdly, we change our minds about our Savior. See, we no longer believe in Jesus mentally. We no longer believe in Jesus as just a fact or a story we learned about in Sunday school as a kid. We receive Jesus by faith into our lives. And we begin to live through him. He, there's life in Christ. And we who were dead in trespasses and sins believe and receive his life. We believe in him. We turn to him. We trust in him. We live through him. We receive him. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. We have the right now to be children of God because of him. When we believe in him, Jesus becomes Lord of our lives. We make the good confession, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You believe, you trust. Now it's different. It's not some mental story. It's not checking off some box. My family believes this. They believe this in the student ministry. They believe this in the children's ministry. But do I believe him? This is what repentance means. It removes all the barriers that we put up whether those barriers are religious or whatever repentance makes a way and repentance comes to us because God is good sometimes people look at repentance as some terrible thing you know why you repented because of God's goodness God could have turned you loose he could have just let you go never dealt with you at all but instead he was good and kind. Romans 2, 4 says it this way. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Look at that verse. See, people, listen. People think God is as indifferent about him 
as you are, as that humans are. People think God is as indifferent about faith as we are. See, people act like God's indifferent. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. That don't sound like it's too indifferent to me, does it? That's the way people are. And people say things like, well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And you ought to get on your knees and ask him to forgive you right now. If you believe that, if you really believe that, what you do is you say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. The minute you really believe God knows your heart, you will repent. But listen, do you despise? There's not, there's not, he didn't say, listen, do you just ignore what God's done for you? Do you just not care? Are you kind of indifferent? Paul says, listen, no. Do you despise the riches of God's goodness towards you? The word can be translated kindness. His forbearance, that God was forbearing with you. God was long-suffering. He was long-tempered with you. Do you despise that? Everyone who hears the gospel who won't get saved is God's going to tell you, you despise my grace towards you. And you didn't know that when I was convicting you and calling you, and it was not because I hated you. It was not because I wanted to make things rough for you. It was because I'm good to you. I didn't want you to pay the wages of sin. I didn't want you to live under the power of sin. I didn't want you to have to be separated from me because of sin. It was my goodness that led you to repentance. When I was 23 years old and I was a blasphemer, I cursed God every other breath almost. I walked into a church and God brought me under deep, deep, deep conviction to the point I couldn't even hardly make it down an aisle. I was weeping so openly. And a man opened the Bible and led me to Jesus. That was God's goodness. Did I care if anybody looked at me and I was embarrassed? Who cares? Who cares if I was embarrassed? I'm not going to be embarrassed when I get to glory because my name's written down. Because God led me to repentance. Now this word come at the end of this verse here, it's a great word, but all should come to repentance. It's a Greek word that means to make room for. That all should make room for repentance because repentance is one of those things that a lot of people don't have room for because it means you've got to get rid of your self-righteousness. It means you've got to get rid of your religion. You don't stand before God and say, well, God, I know I've lived like hell, but you know, I was baptized. Well, God, you know I've lived for myself all my life, but you know I believed. You've got to get rid of that. You've got to make room for repentance. Anything that keeps you close to what God wants to do in your life, you have to make room to get it out of your life. The only way, listen, Jesus is coming. He is coming. And the only way, absolutely only way, anyone will have any hope of being ready is to be saved. Nothing else you do. I don't care how many church services you attend. You get baptized in every church in this county. If you're not saved, there's no room for you in heaven. Because you made room for God in your life. But this morning I'm going to do something I don't normally do. But I feel led at this point to give opportunity for people to be saved. I'm going to do some more preaching after we get through with this point, but I want to settle this right now. So I want you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Those of you watching by Facebook, by YouTube, you listen to. If there's never been a time in your life when you've truly repented, you need to be saved. You're not ready for Jesus to come, and you're not ready to go. And one of those two is going to happen in your lifetime. You're either going to go, or he's either going to come, and you're not ready. But you can be ready. You can repent. You can say, God, I'm making room for you. I'm making room for your forgiveness. I'm making room for your grace. I'm making room for Jesus. This morning, I just want to pray for you. You'd say, preacher, pray for me. I need to be saved. Is there anyone in this room that I can pray for? Just slip your hand up, and I want to pray for you. I'm not going to call your name. I'm just going to pray. I need to be saved. Pray for me. 
There's people out there watching on Facebook. If you've never been saved, sitting in this room, you've never been saved, you can pray something like this right here. Say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I want to make room for Jesus in my life this morning. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he rose again. And I ask you to come into my life and forgive me. I receive you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. You prayed that this morning after the service. You just come to me out in the foyer. Let me know. I'll get you some material, and I'll help you get started. Those of you watching by Facebook, YouTube, you send an email to that email that will come up at the end of this service, and we'll get you some information in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to move to the sec- second point. This is the, sec- this is the rest of the preaching. <laughs> now, we're going into overtime. This is what they call overtime in the ball game. Everybody gets excited about overtime at the ball game. We'll see if they do about church. Here we go. So the second thing is this. If I'm a, I got to be saved. But secondly, I got to be holy. I got to be holy. Holiness, living the life God wants me to, is proof of my repentance. This is proof of my repentance. Not perfection, but holiness. Look at verse 11. Let's go back there again. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Therefore, since everything's passing away, we don't know the day nor the hour the Lord's going to come. He's going to come like a thief. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Sounds like a good question to ask, doesn't it? Sounds like if you're talking about the whole universe being burned up, the whole universe being dissolved, everything you've ever known in your life will be gone. Sounds like a good question to ask. How in the world should you live if that's true? Who should you be if that's true? So, listen, when we talk about prophecy and the Bible talks about things like this, it's not just for speculation to kind of get us, oh, yeah, that's something good to think about. It's not for information for us to write down notes and try to figure out the day nor the hour he'll come. He's coming like a thief. It's for motivation. It's to motivate us, one, to be saved. And two, to be sanctified and live like God wants us to. Because I don't know the hour of the Lord's coming, I need to always be right. And the way I write as a Christian is to live a holy life before God. This week I posted uh, on, my Oswald, on my Facebook, Oswald Chambers, one of his devotions. And I wanted to read a little bit of what I posted because it was so, uh, it was so right on target for what I was teaching this week. Oswald Chambers says this, God has only one intended destiny for mankind, holiness. His only goal is to produce saints. God is not some eternal blessing machine for people to use, and he did not come to save us out of pity. He came to save us because he created us to be holy. Atonement through the cross of Christ means that God can put me back into perfect oneness with himself through the death of Jesus Christ without a trace of anything coming between us any longer. And one day that's going to completely be true. He's working in me now. He's saved me and he's working in me so I can be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Let me give you four words from this text and what we're going to see this morning. The first word is separation. The word holiness itself in the Bible means to be separate. God is wholly separate from us. He's he's not one of us. This is why Jesus coming in the flesh was so revolutionary. God, the eternal God of heaven, holy and perfect, left heaven and became flesh and walked among sinners like me because he's separate. 
And the Bible tells us to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6, 17 says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Be separate. The word here in verse 11, for manner, what manner of persons ought you to be? It's an interesting word. It means exotic, out of this world, or foreign. What, what foreign manner ought you to have to this world? The Bible says we've escaped the corruption of the world. The Bible says, Peter said in 1 Peter, that we're strangers and pilgrims. This is not our home. The Bible says there's an eternal city whose maker and builder is God that we're going to. It's holy other than anything else. It's where righteousness dwells. So if that's our home, what manner of persons ought we to be? We ought to be different people. Not odd necessarily. That's another story. But different. There ought to be a difference about us. Peter quoted Leviticus 19 over in 1 Peter where God said, Be ye holy for I am holy. Be separate for I am separate. Don't be like everyone around you. And yet it seems today that many Christians think this is the most foreign thing in the world. They don't even talk about it. They believe this is some kind of strange thing. This is old-fashioned stuff. In our new-fashioned church age, we don't talk about this stuff. I can't read the Bible and not see it. And it's everywhere. This week, as I, after I had prepared this message, I got an email uh, about a survey, and so the message got a little longer. But uh, it said this. This is the Pew Research poll. You know, they do all sorts of polls, politics, uh, life, religion. This is what they found. A majority of American adults who identify as Christians see no problem with having sex outside of marriage, particularly if two people are in a committed relationship. Right here from the article, it says this. Most U.S. Christians say it's acceptable in at least some circumstances for consenting adults to have sex outside of marriage. The Pew survey found that 57% of U.S. adults who call themselves Christians believe that sex in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable, while 49% of those same people think that casual sexual relationships to consenting adults not in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. Listen, I got news for those folks. The God of heaven has says it's never acceptable, and he's not okay with it. He's not changed. He's not backed up. He's not redesigned who he is for the 2020s. He's still holy. And if you're his, he's telling you to be holy. And if you won't be holy, then you are out of the will of God. Secondly, it talks about godliness. He says here, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Godliness, the word godliness is translated, could be translated piety. It means to worship well. It's the word reverence. It's also translated reverence. And, and uh, it, it describes a person whose life is lived reverent to God, who desires their life to be pleasing to God, who wants everything in their life to be pleasing to God. So don't cut any corners and don't, don't, don't uh, take any shortcuts. It's a life devoted to the glory of God. Many verses describe this but Colossians 3 23 Paul says it this way and whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord as to the Lord and not to men do it as to God this is holy so I'm going to go to work I, I'm doing this to the Lord I'm going to go to school I'm doing this as to the Lord I, I'm, I'm going to um, 
I'm going to invest some money. Do it as to God. I'm going to have a relationship. Do it as to the Lord. It's all God's. Godliness doesn't mean I'm perfect. Godliness doesn't mean I walk around thinking I'm spiritual, looking down to everybody. Godliness means everything I do is to God. It's for God and His glory. Third word is peace. Peace. It's found, found down in verse 14. Look there. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. There it is again. Looking forward to that new heavens, that new earth. Be diligent. Make every effort to be found by him. When he comes, to be found by him. He's coming. He's going to find you. Be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Peace. Now, peace covers a lot of areas in our life. We can talk about inner peace. We can talk about peace with other people. John MacArthur describes it this way. He says, Peter's speaking about the kind of peace that banishes both earthly worries and cosmic fears. A peace that comes from knowing for certain that our sins are forgiven, no matter how terrible things become as human history moves towards its final destruction. Believers who live in hope have the settled peace sustained by what the Lord has planned for those who love him. All the world seems to be falling apart right now. Christian people can have peace. It means as a Christian that I continually seek to live close to God. I keep sin out of my own heart and life. When I sin, I confess it. I keep seeking to draw near to God. I confess my own doubts and my own fears. I confess my own unbelief. And if I'm alive when he appears... I won't be living in some spiritually distant place. I won't be in some spiritual distant condition that I'm so far from God, I'm ashamed. But I've been drawing near. I'm believing He's coming. I've got peace in my heart. If it all falls apart, He's still on the throne. The last word is this, purity. Purity. Without spot and blameless. Without spot means to be without a stain. We, back in chapter 2, Peter talked about the false teachers that were spots on the love feast. Remember I described it as a picture of taking something like a dark substance like oil and just splattering it on a white tablecloth or something? He says, you're, you're not going to be one who's a dark spot on the bride of Christ. You're going to be blameless. Now, this word wasn't sinless. There's a difference between being blameless and sinless. Blameless is, if you sin, you deal with it. When you sin, you deal with it. You, you settle it and you take care of it. If you have something you've done to harm someone, you go ask forgiveness. You keep the blame off of you. See, this is purity. And being pure is a distinguishing mark of people who have peace with God. Knowing Jesus is going to come purifies us. 1 John 3, 2 says it this way, Beloved, now we, have, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we shall know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What a great promise. And everyone who has this hope, see, the world doesn't see Jesus coming as hope. If you're saved, you see Jesus coming as hope. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself. Just as he is pure. Why? He's coming. I don't want to be ashamed at his coming. So I want to get this stuff out of my life. If I've sinned against you, I want to go take care of it. If I've harmed you, I want to deal with it. If I've got something in my heart, I want to deal with it so I can be pure. I want to help others know him. Henry Blackaby, that 
writer of that great study, Experiencing God, wrote a devotion on this very text, and it's entitled, What Manner of Persons Ought You to Be? Listen to what he says. When God told Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's life was immediately and radically affected. Noah could not carry on business as usual once he knew what God was planning for his generation. Knowing that God is preparing judgment brings a sobering reality to Christians, helping us recognize what is internally significant and what is not. Peter cautions us that a catastrophic time of judgment is coming. On the day of the Lord, there will be a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And on that day, he warns the earth will be consumed. Peter assures us this is not mere speculation. It is certain and imminent. He then asks the crucial question that applies to every generation and every person. What kind of person ought you to be? With judgment pending for us and countless of millions of people facing destruction, how should we live? Many Christians attach great value to temporal things. Hobbies and possessions consume us, leave little time or energy to invest in what is eternal. More than anything else, Christians should be sensitive to the times in which we live. We should walk so closely with God that if He is preparing to bring judgment upon people, we should warn them in imminent peril. And since Christ has been so long-suffering with us, should we not invest our efforts in building His eternal kingdom? Should there not be an urgency about us to complete what God has given us to do? See, this reminds us that our prayer lives need to be strong. Holy living ought to be a part of who we are. If we're lax in our holiness, we need to tighten up. We need to confess and get right. We, have, we need a Christ-first Christianity. Remember, not a me-first Christianity. We need an urgency to tell other people. What about the people we know? If Jesus was to come and rapture his church tonight, would you go? And how many people do you know who wouldn't go? If Jesus comes and raptures his church and we enter into a seven-year tribulation period in which the Bible says God will send a strong delusion upon the whole earth of those who rejected the truth, how many people do you know who will perish who maybe you've never even told? We must take serious his admonitions to be ready, to be holy, to be prepared. And if we are, we'll have confidence whenever we face him. 1 John 2, 28 says it this way, And now, little children, abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Folks, if we'll get ready, get saved, and live a holy life, when he comes, you might be surprised. And I think everyone's going to be surprised. But you won't be ashamed. You won't have anything to say, Lord, I know I spent 20 years living this way. And you kept calling me and kept telling me. But I just couldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. Lord, I know I had this in my life. But, but God, this person did this to me. And it uh, won't be any of that. We'll confess it and get it right with God. The people that we should tell, we will tell. The people we should pray for, we will pray for. Folks, this is serious business. He's coming. It's a promise. And if he doesn't come, I'm still going because I'm not going to live forever. So the question is, are we ready? Let's bow for prayer this morning.